Ready? Are you ready to get started? I'm ready. It's been such a long hiatus. It has, but you know, life and school and work and COVID. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But okay, let's go ahead and get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Read More podcast. My name is Emily Caroline Moore. I'm a reader, I'm a writer, and a podcaster. And I am joined today, as always, by my lovely co-host, reader and English teacher extraordinaire, my mom. Hello, I am Anne Ferguson Stancil, and I am an English teacher and a reader and a quilter and... I'm Emily's mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really excited to be back on the podcast with you guys, and I am particularly excited about this episode. So I, am I. I cannot wait to talk about this topic. We have been talking about this topic and this author for decades together. We have shared a love of this author and her works for as long as I can remember being alive. Uh, so <laughs> this is an author that, if, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that as a general rule, I tend to swing more towards the science fiction and fantasy and swords and sorcery and spaceships and dragons and wizards and witches and all of that sort of nonsense. And that mom tends to swing towards the historical fiction and more of, I think, kind of classic literature as well. Um, but this is an author that it unites our reading bonds. <laughs> and really does. Really does. And that author that we will be discussing today is the wondrous Jane Austen, of course. <laughs> but before we talk about Jane, we have to open up with the question that we always open up with at the start of our podcast, and that is, Mom, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm just going to go ahead and disclaim that if, if I am not careful, we could create a whole podcast on what I'm reading right now. <laughs> but I will... I will not digress and I will try to keep it short because I know that some folks that may be listening to our podcast may be reading this book as well. I am reading currently Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone by Diana Gabaldon. This is book number nine in the Outlander series, the much-awaited um, book nine. It's been seven years since Gabaldon published. Of course, in the in the interim, after it, there's been the the stars series that she has worked on. She's done a lot of other things, up, you know, that have to do with that and have to do with her spinoff fiction. Um, but this book came out November 23rd of 2021, and we are recording in January of 2022. And so I've kind of kept this book on the back burner, but it is classic Outlander. Um, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm enjoying it a great deal. Um, and I'm trying to savor it because right. I know it will be a long time before book number 10 comes out. These books are so well researched and so well written that they just don't happen in a year. They take time um, to write. So I will be looking for book number 10, but I'm savoring book number nine. Mm -hmm. So Emily, 
what are you reading? What am I reading? Well, as usual, I am reading more than one thing at once. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to list two things uh, that I'm reading right now. The first is that I'm reading Dune Messiah by Frank Herbert, which is the sequel to Dune, which if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that one of the uh, last episodes that I did in 2021 was that I read Dune for the first time. I did an entire, like, very long, in-depth review of Dune, um, and I am now reading that sequel and very much enjoying it. Um, the book starts out with an introduction by Brian Herbert, who is Frank Herbert's son. And the very first thing that Brian Herbert says is that most readers in the late 1960s, when Herbert published Dune Messiah, the follow-up to Dune, most readers were really mad because he had taken this hero of Paul Atreides in Dune, and then in Dune Messiah, he shows what hero worship can do to the world and how heroes are not always heroes and how, you know, that savior narrative that we have in Dune really does come to be almost a nightmare in, in Dune Messiah. And that a lot of readers were not happy about that. They wanted their, like, yeah, the hero he fights the bad guys, he wins, he he gets the girl. No, 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 no. That is not the message of Dune. And that's not the message of Dune Messiah. Um, so if you have read Dune and you really liked it, I highly encourage that you keep going and you get the full picture um, mm -hmm. of the Dune stories. That's, that's the fiction book that I am reading right now. The other book that I just started last night... It's my before-bed nonfiction read, is I am reading A Loaded Gun, Emily Dickinson for the 21st Century. Oh, and I'm it, highly intrigued. It is, so it's by a guy named Jerome, oh, what's his name? What's his last name? Jerome Charner. Jerome Charn. A Loaded Gun, Emily Dickinson for the 21st Century. And... I had wanted to read a Dickinson biography because I just finished watching the incredible Apple TV series Dickinson. It's a three series or a three season series that looks at the life of Emily Dickinson and her poetry through kind of a more modern lens. Highly recommend it. It's a cute series. But through watching that series, I got reacquainted with Emily Dickinson's poetry in becoming reacquainted with her poetry, I became obsessed with her poetry and now keep a completed works of Emily Dickinson by my bed on my bedside table and read a couple of poems of hers every night before I go to sleep. And I was like, I need to read more about her life because we have this picture of Emily Dickinson as this like reclusive spinster person. And in recent decades, scholars and historians and literary folks are starting to realize that that probably wasn't the case, that Emily Dickinson actually lived a very colorful life that we're only just now becoming aware of. And so this book, this particular biography, is looking at Emily Dickinson's life through her poetry, yes, but then also through her letters and through the letters to her and through the lives of people that she knew and it's piecing together 
more of what we might know about her life, which is not nearly as like trivially and spinstery and quiet as we think. Her life really was a loaded gun, like f- just full of possibility and fire. And um, I am thoroughly enjoying it. All right, so without any further ado, because now we have, we have like jabbered a good bit about the books that we're reading and that we're very excited about, we now need <laughs> to turn our attention to today's topic. And that is the wonderful Jane Austen. And so we both love her dearly. This is an author. Jane Austen has united us in our love of reading for years and years and years. And she's also an author that has united and continued to entertain the English-speaking world for over 200 years. Um, Jane Austen died in 1817, over two centuries ago. She's most known for her six major novels, most famously Pride and Prejudice, but also Sense and Sensibility, Persuasion, Northanger Abbey, Mansfield Park, and Emma. She also wrote two unfinished works, and let me know if I'm pronouncing this right. Is it Sanditon? Yes. Sanditon and The Watsons, I believe. And then she also wrote a collection of stories that are known as the Juvenilia stories. Um, And these include, just in case readers are wondering what that might include, that includes Lady Susan, which was adapted into a Kate Beckinsale film. I think it was called Love and Friendship. Yeah, I think Um, there's some connection there. I'm I'm not as familiar with um, the unfinished, Mm -hmm. other than the the very intriguing um, BBC miniseries of Sanditon, Mm. which came on. A year or so ago, but, you know, you got somebody else's take on how that actually worked because she had only begun Sanditon at the time Mm -hmm. of her death in 1817. Right. So today we're going to talk about Jane Austen's works. Um, Hopefully, if you are a reader that has, as of yet, not given Austen a try, I hope that after listening to today's episode, you will be enticed to give her a try. Um, We will be talking about why we personally love Austen so dearly and which of her works are our favorites and why. But then most importantly, and the topic that I really want to dive into together today is why Jane Austen is still so popular to this day and still so celebrated, still 200 years later, why is her work, which her work, it centers on the landed gentry class of the late 18th century in England. Why is that still so enduring? I once saw a meme. This guy had read Pride and Prejudice and the meme just said, IDK, it's just people going over to each other's houses. And it's like, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But... Why does it still capture us? If it's just people going over to each other's house and just a bunch of rich white folks going around and taking walks, taking a turn about the room, why <laughs> Why is it still so enduring and captivating and entertaining and wonderful today? So to start off with our first uh, discussion point, I want to know, Mom, what is your favorite of Jane Austen's works and why? Well, I think if if anybody was to 
ask me that question or try to guess for me what that would be. They would say, oh, it's got to be Pride and Prejudice. Everyone thinks that. Everyone, the minute that you mention Jane Austen, people are like, oh, Pride and Prejudice. It is her most famous work, and people automatically assume that that's your favorite. Yep. And it and it has been, it's very popular, and it has been cinematized, if that's a word, um, so many times. It's been, yes. you know, the 1995 Colin Firth, Jennifer oh, L. <laughs> that is, it is the, you know, wonderful. It is so wonderful. You, you Most people think, oh, it's got to be Pride and Prejudice. Not for me. Not for me. My favorite, always has been my favorite Jane Austen is Persuasion. Mm. Persuasion, I think, was the last, I could be wrong about this. And let, let me go ahead and say the disclaimer that we talked about earlier before we started recording. Emily and I are... Jane Austen fans. Yes. We love Jane Austen. We have read Jane Austen. We are not Jane Austen scholars, Mm -hmm. nor are we such fans that people would call us Janeites, which would be the people who write fan fiction um, based on her books. We're not that. We just love this author and we love her book. Mm So if you're looking, we're fangirls. Right. We're yeah. fangirls. It, if you're looking for serious academic um, discussion on Jane Austen, this is not the right podcast episode <laughs> for you. Because I would say if you're looking for like serious, serious academic discussion on anything, maybe go <laughs> elsewhere because it's just it's just me and you yammering. It's just us waffling on about what we like, but but persuasion is my favorite, and I I love persuasion because it is the second chance book. Mm-hmm. It is all about second chances. The main premise of the book centers around the main character Anne Elliot, who eight years before the book opens had refused an offer of marriage from. Frederick Wentworth, who was an officer in the British Navy. Um, She had refused this offer because her family and particularly her mother's dear friend had encouraged her not to because he did not have fortune. He did not have position. And she, Anne Elliot comes from a, her father is a baronet, which is nobility. And so she's expected to make a better match than that. So at this point, when the novel opens, she's 27 years old. She's not married. At that point, she is considered to be in their time an old maid and her prospects of getting married at all are really, really low. And she's disappointed that she made what she considers to be a very bad decision because she still loves Frederick Wentworth. Um, The thing that I like about persuasion is that she gets a second opportunity and she takes this second opportunity and she takes it decisively. She knows her own mind. She isn't in any way pushy. She's not domineering but she takes an opportunity and of course are we giving spoilers here emily i don't know 
you can, you can give us what, like, okay, they've been out for 200 years, people. You, you can read them. You've probably seen an adaptation. If you don't know what happens, I don't know, click off for two seconds, but right. Yeah. <laughs> so, read the so here, books, guys. You know, at the end, um, Anne realizes that not only does she still love Wentworth, he still loves her too. She lets him know that and they wind up together. Second chances. It's, it's awesome. So that's my favorite. And the, mm-hmm. the writing is splendid. Mm-hmm. Splendid. And we're, so, we'll go more into that yeah. in, in a second too. Yeah. Because it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, so Emily, what is your favorite so, my favorite Jane Austen novel, you're, everyone's always like, what is Emma? Really? I love Emma. And if I if I could, like, define my personality, <laughs> I would say that I am a healthy combination of Catherine Moreland and Emma Woodhouse. <laughs> I am the two of them together. Okay, that's I, funny, because I did not see that coming at all. I think that everyone wants to be a Lizzie Bennet. And, but you're not like no, you're not you're just not a Lizzie Bennett like I am very comfortable in saying that I have more in common with silly Emma Woodhouse than I do with Lizzie Bennett and that is because I I really do feel like we know that Emma is the heroine that Jane Austen herself said that no one else would like but her but I love her. I feel such a kinship with Emma. I feel like Emma Woodhouse and I would be great frenemies. Um, she is so smart. She is so headstrong. She is so ambitious. And she has a very clear desire, like I do, to be helpful and good. But she very often... Yeah, she very often fails at being both. She very often fails at being helpful or being good. And there's just such a truth to that. I feel that. Um, I think that like Emma, I can be very like filled with hubris. And like, oh, everything I touch turns to gold. I, I can totally play matchmaker and all of my meddling will be wondrous. And that's not the case. And I love the fact that Austin introduces Emma Woodhouse as this golden girl who is very indulged. She has lived her life with a very indulgent father. Her mother died when she was young. So Emma and her sister is married. So Emma has been the lady of her house for a while, even though Emma is only 21 years old at the beginning of the novel or throughout the novel. Um, But she has been in control of her world and had people dote on her and call her the light of everyone's world and look up to her and be charmed by her her whole life. And Austin is saying that even with all of that, Emma has a lot of growing to do. And Emma has a lot of internal work that she needs to do, not to like get a husband, even though she does get a husband in the end, but not to get a husband, not to get money, not to secure her fortune, but just to be a better person. Right. Like Emma's already a pretty cool person, but she has she still has work to do. And through her learning lessons, through her own <laughs> her own mistakes, and through having 
a person who loves her in the character of Mr. Knightley, who eventually, spoiler alert, who eventually becomes her husband, Mr. Knightley is the one who's there to check her. So Emma, Emma is my favorite. I love her. We're, we won't even have to mention the fact that Emma was adapted into a modern classic known as Clueless. Okay, that's <laughs> Emma. If you know Clueless, if you've watched Clueless, Clueless is Emma. It's yes. just for modern audiences. Um, so that's just another reason why Emma continues to be my favorite of the so Jane Austen novels. So it really doesn't have anything to do with the Emma-Emily connection, does it? I had not made that connection until just now. (laughs) (laughs) Are you serious? No, I hadn't thought of it. (laughs) I really hadn't. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Maybe if if you name, just know, future parents, if you name your daughters anything that starts with M, Emma, Emily, Emmy, Emmeline... She is going to be smart and meddlesome and a little bit headstrong and kind of a lot. Yeah. Kind of extra. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so those are our favorites. Those and uh, they're not, interestingly enough, they're not the, the two big names. Because the two right. big names, of course, are Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And sense, yeah. If you, she only had six published works. And most people can name those two. Mm-hmm. Folks like us can go down the list and probably leave out one. And the one I might always leave out is Mansfield Park, even though I love Mansfield Park. But, um, you know, if I'm trying to count it off on my fingers, that's the one that I'm going to leave out. Mm. But so it's interesting that we both have. Um, we love those two. And, and I would say that our love with Jane Austen really kind of solidified with watching the 1995 um, miniseries, BBC miniseries, mm-hmm. um, with Colin Firth, mm-hmm. and which we called Pride and Prejudice. Yes, because it is six hours long. Is it is it six hours? Or is it longer than six hours? It might it be. I know it's it's at least six parts. So I yeah. thought it was six hours. It might be longer. Whatever the time passes like nothing when you're watching <laughs> Pride and Prejudice. It's great. That and is, that is the series that launched Colin Firth into stardom. Yeah. Like that that's the one that gave him his career. Right. So you know you grew up watching that, and of course there was. The Sense and Sensibility with, help me out, um, Emma Thompson and... Kate Winslet and um, Alan Grant and Hugh Grant, directed by Ang Lee, um, which is perhaps, I was just discussing this um, through Instagram with a high school friend. That is probably, if I'm really honest, I love Pride and Prejudice. But the Ang Lee Sense and Sensibility adaptation is my favorite cinematic Jane Austen adaptation because it's just so lovely. And friends, if you have never seen Emma Thompson's Golden Globe acceptance speech for Ah! Best Actress. For Best Adapted Screenplay. Oh, is that what it is? Yes, Okay. for Best Adapted Screenplay. 
she answers in the voice. She accepts this award in the voice of Jane Austen, and it is epic. It's hilarious. It's the best. My favorite um, line from that speech, just one line, is when she's talking about being at the Golden Globes and she's commenting on the dresses, and all she says is, the gowns were middling. I love that. <laughs> and she talks about Ang Lee as being a foreign, a foreign extraction. extraction. <laughs> right. Great. But anyway, you need to, to listen to the Google that one. It's it's awesome. It's great. All right. So what is it about Austin as a whole that we love? Because obviously, you know, you love Persuasion. I love Emma, but we love all of them. And so yeah. what is it about Austin as a whole that you and I love and why do we continue to revisit her novel. Right. So why why do we continuously go back to Jane Austen personally? Why do you go back? For me, there is a sense of it's it's almost a paradox. There is this calmness to her world. It's very ordered. It's very sane. Even in the midst of chaotic things like um, trying to to secure your financial future through any way that you can at that time for a woman, it was very chaotic. You had to find a husband. There was nothing else you could do other than be poor, starve to death, or sell yourself. It yep. was um, it was a time when women had to, in order to stay socially viable, mm -hmm. they had to um, secure their fortune. That's stressful. Yeah. She was writing in the middle of a war. I think one biography said that of her 40, however many years, I think she was 42 years, um, 24 of those years, Britain was at war. Wow. And so her life was, there was chaos mm -hmm. in her world. And yet there's a calmness to her yeah. writing. There's a very um, ordered sense of how people behave with each other that, that draws my attention. Mm -hmm. That's very comfortable to me. Most, and we're going to talk about this, I think most of her dialogue, well, actually, there's very little dialogue in her books. Mm -hmm. Most of it is the inner narrative. Right. And a lot of people find that boring. They have a hard time with that because our modern reading sensibilities are all about the conversation and the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Her inner narrative is what keeps me so focused on what she's writing. I love the fact that you're in... Um, Catherine Moreland's head. You're in Lizzie Bennett's head, and you are observing. And so that's something that that makes me come back to her. Plus, it's just it, all of the the different things are it's relationships, it's marriages, it's family mm -hmm. things that we find ourselves concerned with all the time, even now. Mm -hmm. Relationships. It is her books are all about that. They're not political. They're not 
about, there's a lot of talk about money and the fact that you have to have it, mm-hmm. but they're not socioeconomic necessarily. I mean, they do take place within a social strata, but all of the problems that are there are problems that everybody on every level would have been able to relate to. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think all of that, all of the things that you just said, those are true for me, but there is one thing about Austin that keeps me coming back and rereading and just delighting in Jane Austen. And that is her comedic and almost effortless sass. The fact that every single line, not just a couple, every line has a wit. It has a bite. You read a sentence and you're like, (laughs) you just giggle because you're like, she, did she just, did she say that? You know what I mean? Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. She did say that. There's always an underlying meaning. There's always some sort of observation that she's making about the world around her or deliciously some kind of insult that she has thinly veiled in very beautiful words that you have to be looking for. And I love being, being a person that loves words and loves language and expression. Jane Austen is like a playground. She's as good at throwing shade as Dickens was. Yes, yes. She was writing on, and she was before Dickens, um, but she was writing on the same intellectual yes. level that he wrote on. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you just finished over the Christmas holiday, you finished uh, read again a Chris, or read for the first time? Was it the first, first time? This was my first time ever reading A Christmas Carol. And so you know then what I'm talking about. Yes. That ability to put in the quip. And, mm-hmm. and I call that the chuckle factor. Uh-huh. <laughs> because you're reading along and you're going like, uh, uh. It's it makes you chuckle. Yeah. So in, in speaking of Dickens, I think that we can now start going into our our final topic and, and the real meat of today's discussion, which is we love Jane Austen. We have our favorites. We keep going back to Jane Austen. But the crazy thing is, it's not just us. It's the entire English-speaking world. The entire English-speaking world and various cultures and people groups from across the English-speaking and English-reading world continue to go back to read Austen and to watch the adaptations and to read and write fan fiction about Austen and her, her characters and, and her novels. And so what is the staying power of Jane Austen? I, I have some things that I've listed out as to why people devote such staying power to Jane Austen. I think the first one, as you mentioned, Charles Dickens, is that before Austen, we didn't have the types of novels that we have today. When we think of novels, we didn't have these styles of novels. She really did revolutionize the novel as an art form. 
And Jane Austen is now considered a central figure of English literature, so much so that people can forget that before her, novels were not written like this. She really was a pioneer of her own time. Um, you talked a little bit ago about how there's not a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of inner discourse and inner narrative, and she really helped to birth that style. She actually gives readers the protagonist's perspective and private thoughts, and they're interwoven throughout the plot. And this sort of style, that inner monologue, an inner observation would be emulated by novelists like Charles Dickens, like George Eliot, and it makes each story deeply personal. I think that it's really easy to empathize with Elizabeth Bennet and Catherine Moreland and Fanny Price and, and Emma Woodhouse because you're in their heads. You're experiencing it through their thoughts and their letters and their observations and their experiences. And I think that her choice to write her stories that way, it's a big piece of why people keep coming back. Um, the thing that I want to add to that, Emily, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, is how incredibly criticized she was for her writing style. I, I've read um, an article once as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, I've never read an Austin biography and I need to get onto that, but I was reading an article about how in her time, what did it say in her time period, the novel was seen as a frivolous form of entertainment. Yes, it was. It Novels were very stylized. They were um, melodramatic. It was not considered serious reading material. And which she satirizes masterfully in Northanger Abbey. In Northanger Abbey, yes. Um, but a lot of writers of her time and shortly after criticized her. Charlotte Bronte ripped her up. Mm. And um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning um, criticized her and said that basically she wrote too small. She was um, vulgar in tone. Um <laughs> Which is amazing. Uh, there, there were quite a few. I, I was looking at *The Mad Woman in the Attic* by um, Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar, which is kind of a a critical feminist bible, um, and or, or was back when I was in school. And they talk about how um, she was. She wrote small. She wrote about her little world. Jane wrote about her little world, her little level, and was so criticized for that. The thing is, is she was writing about her observations, yes, of her very small corner of the world, but she was observing it so profoundly. Mm -hmm. um, so even as, as far as up as Mark Twain, he had kind of terrible things to say about her as, as some of the others did, but she was highly criticized for that inner narrative and that small box that she seemed to mm -hmm. write in. Um, and I quite frankly think that on the part of some of those authors, that was jealousy. I, I think yeah. that Charlotte Bronte knew genius when she saw it because she was one. I mean, you know, 
and and Bronte took a different tact, but I think she recognized the genius that was Jane Austen and maybe was a little jealous. Probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's just me. <laughs> I think, too, y- you talk about a small world, but I think that that's another reason why people keep coming back to Jane Austen. I think that she provides modern readers with a what did you say a minute ago a a safe cozy small sort of read Um, but she provides modern readers with an antiquated fantasy world all of austin's works are about the leisure class of the regency era and i think that sometimes in a technology obsessed hyper-connected world some readers are still very drawn to stories that evoke certain feelings of safety that's the whole reason why you have this whole movement on tiktok called cottage core of people who are like i just want to live the simple life of like in my cottage and i take walks on the moor and i have my candlesticks and i grow my vegetables and all of that that is a feeling that i think a lot of people that live in our modern 21st century world are craving And I think that Jane Austen provides that through her writing. Long walks on the moor and your quaint cottages and your country dances and your candlesticks and playing the pianoforte and worrying about what, you know, the people in your little village think of you and your sisters and your (laughs) crazy mother (laughs) and things like that. Which just goes to show the contradiction there. I mean, we, we see this tiny little world, this the world of the drawing room mm-hmm. and the um, the little writer's attic and this this very small, you know, we dine with four and 20 families. <laughs> <laughs> this has been at Bragg's at one point. And which is just, okay, so they have 48 friends, you know. Um, <laughs> It's a small world they live in, but which seems, like you say, very simple and very cozy. But the problem is, is that nothing is simple. Mm -hmm. Nothing is simple when you are trying to figure out, you know, as Mrs. Bennett says, when you have five daughters that need to get married so that they have a secure life. Mm-hmm. then what else are you going to think about? Exactly. You know, this these were big deals. Mm-hmm. There were, yeah. the relationships were difficult, mm-hmm. just like they are in a time of TikTok and Facebook and, and YouTube and podcasts and exactly. all. Exactly, yeah. These, these are, are things that are still relevant to the modern reader, too. These, you know... Not all of us have these big earth-shattering problems of state (laughs) to deal with every day. Usually our problems are much more insular and small. And I I think that the characters and the issues that existed in Austin's world are the characters and the issues that we're still seeing in our world today. You have money, you have snobs, you have religion, you have familial responsibility, freedom of the individual, class, propriety. All of these are... We have things that we still have. And I think that we see ourselves and our friends and our family in Austin's characters. And 
I think that that's what is relevant. It's not just the problem. It's that it's her character studies as well. It's the fact that she almost looks at psychological tropes in each of her characters. Mm-hmm. We, we all know if we're more of a Marianne or an Eleanor, right? We've right. all known an Emma. We have all met and probably been like ticked off by a Mr. Darcy. We've all known a cad like Willoughby or Wickham, right? Right. And her characterizations show a profound insight into human psychology that helps us understand our world to this day. And I I think that while, you know, yeah, they're back 200 years ago, like in horse-drawn carriages and dining with four and 20 families and like the biggest highlight of their year is, you know, taking a walk across the orchard and having a picnic, whatever. Those things have changed. Now we have computers in our pockets, but people don't change. People People are the exact same. People are still too proud or too prejudiced or they're meddlesome, or they're too trusting, or they're easily persuaded by their friends and family to make really bad romantic choices, or they can be tiresome or really manipulative. Everything that her characters are, we still are. And I I think that that is so beautiful and so relevant. Well, we've all had that moment. Okay, think about that moment in Emma Mm -hmm. where they're having the picnic on Box Hill and Emma, and Emma insults Mrs. Bates. And the words are out of her mouth before she even knows what she's done. And there's immediate recognition of, I have just screwed up. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows that. And everybody knows I said the wrong thing. That happens to us mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, yes. so like I said, in that very simple, in that very antiquated fantasy world that you were talking about we find the real life situations that we relate to and I think that's the thing that gets us Mm -hmm. interested in Jane Austen and you know so yes we've all been there we've all done that we've seen those people even on a like a grander kind of like more to the heart romantic scale just thinking about like Marianne and Willoughby everybody when they are young they have had an infatuation that became their sole obsession and they put all their eggs in that basket right of that relationship and that romance and then what happened reality sets in you get your heart broken like we've all had that we've all had those situations sometimes when we're younger sometimes when we're older of falling hard for the wrong person Falling hard for the person that just utterly shatters your heart while the right person for us is right there under our nose. And we don't we don't even see them. We don't see the Colonel Brandons because we're too infatuated with the terrible Willoughby. Right. Right. That is so that that is like every tender and grinder date ever. Like, <laughs> like that is so Still happening to this yeah. day. The other thing about Jane Austen, and it's something I touched on about, you know, one of my favorite things about her writing and why I keep coming back to her and why I think so many other people keep coming back to Jane Austen is that her writing and through her writing, her wit are still 
to this day, completely unparalleled. There were a lot of books about Regency era women trying to get husbands. And many of them were actually published during Austen's time. She had contemporaries. She had other authors writing about this class of people, going about their lives and trying to do their own, their things. But none of them hold up to Austen's stylish writing. When you read a sentence of Jane Austen, you know her immediately. Her voice is that distinct. I, I think it's some of the best writing, just in terms of, of actual ability in the English language. Well, it is up, absolutely amazing. Open up your copy. I know you've got it right there. I don't have mine, but open up your copy of Pride and Prejudice and read the first The line. very first line. First line of Pride Which and everyone is going to probably recognize, but here it is. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. I mean, we all know that. And if you think about it, that sums up the whole marriage dilemma uh -huh. of Regency era women. And yet it's still just sassy. Of it, course, is sassy. it is a truth universally acknowledged. If you have money, you must be in want of a wife. You must be looking for a wife. And, and here we are to fill that need. <laughs> Because we've got to have security, but it's an, that's not the only part. I mean, she, mm -hmm. there's wit all the way through. There is wit and her, I mean, her timing in mm -hmm. writing is so hilarious and devilish. There are things, I'm going to read a line. This is what I call the Jane Austen dick joke. <laughs> but okay, I'm going to read it. This is the Jane Austen dick joke. Okay. He had, in fact, though his sisters were now doing all they could for him by calling him poor Richard, been nothing better than a thick-headed, unfeeling, unprofitable Dick Musgrove, who had never done anything to entitle himself to more than the abbreviation of his name, living or dead. She just called him a dick. He had never done anything to entitle himself to more than the abbreviation of his name. Like, Jane Austen... In the most flowery way possible, just called your boy a dick. <laughs> like, that is incredible. <laughs> and people, people want that. It's so smart. It's so just edgy and funny and beautiful. All at the same time, all of the things that you want writing to be, it is. And I think that that is why, one of the many reasons why people keep coming back to her. It comes from a woman who, for her time, was considered less than because she was an unmarried female. Mm -hmm. And yet, she's got more intelligence and more quickness than she's supposed to have. Exactly, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, love, <laughs> love the, the dick, Jeff. Mm -hmm. I want that one final thing of why people keep coming back to her. And I want to see what you think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but all of her heroines have a happy ending. And am I, am I wrong in saying that all of them have 
more or less, they don't know exactly what they want. You know, at the beginning of the novel, some of them want certain things, and then by the end of the novel, they have had the happy ending, but they might not have gotten that thing that they originally wanted. Right. But to some extent, all of her heroines, they they have a happy ending. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering if that's part of the reason why Jane Austen continues to be a safe bet. That in in a world where a lot of times, especially in literary fiction, we don't get happy endings all the time. There's not a satisfactory resolution. Right. Um, well, is that one of why people continue to read her too? I would say that's probably true. Another observation that I have about her, yes, is I'm looking. I'm looking at all the titles, and you're right. Um, most everybody gets a good ending. Um, Marianne doesn't get the man that she thinks she wants, but she get, gets the man who is right for her. The thing that I think is so admirable about Jane Austen in that, yes, she does give these women marriages, futures. She stops at the wedding. If you look at every single one of her heroines, every single one of her books, they move up until the time when Lizzie and Jane and uh, Marianne and Catherine get married and she only writes about what she knows. Right. Jane Austen wrote about relationships and courtships yeah. and marriages and she's up to the up to the wedding and then she strictly stayed out of marriage of marriage now the marriages that she portrayed sometimes she's a little shakespeare-ish here in that the marriages that she portrayed were not always happy if you look at mr and mrs bennett right mr bennett married a woman that was beautiful and silly and regretted it and they didn't respect each other right Okay, so if you look at um, Sense and Sensibility, the mother has lost her husband. She wants for her for her daughters a, a stable marriage. But if you look at John Dashwood and Fanny, they're not, Fanny is manipulative. The marriages that she portrays are sometimes not great. Yeah. Um, if you are looking at Mansfield Park, one of the sisters gets married and she has an illicit affair with someone else because the man that she married while wealthy was ridiculous and she yeah. didn't love him. So she, well, and the same in Emma. There's contention between... I can think of two married couples in Emma where there's contention. So she has a, she wants to get her heroines married off, but then she stays out of the marriage relationship. And that might have been an area that she did not want to explore in a novel herself because she didn't have that experience. But what that did do 
is it opened up a lot of opportunity for fan fiction writers to <laughs> fill in the gaps now in modern times. And there's there's so much great fan fiction. Tons of fan fiction. Tons of it. Some of them are excellent. Some of yeah. them are a lot of fun. And yeah, so she inspired way past her own six books and her couple of unfinished pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I do want to end with some suggestions. And we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that there might be some folks out there that are readers or want to become readers or more frequent readers and they've never tried Austin before as an English teacher, someone who assigns and suggests books if a person has never read a word of Austin, what do you think they should start with? Should they start with the the most popular Pride and Prejudice? Should they start with Northanger Abbey, which I think is her shortest, or I think actually Persuasion is her shortest? Yeah. What what should they start with? Don't start with Mansfield Park. It's really long. <laughs> Mansfield Park is yeah. I wouldn't start with that one. Most people have seen an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, um, either the 1995 miniseries that we talked about or the Kira Knightley um, version from, I think it's 2005, which gets a lot of bad press, but I think it's really quite a beautiful movie. And what love it. I've never heard of this. Kira Knightley? has bad press? I've never Oh, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of people who are um, Jane Austen, Fans who just don't like that movie at all. But I love oh, it. Oh, whatever. You know. I love it, too. I love it for the soundtrack alone. <laughs> soundtrack's great. Um, but so I would say that if if somebody would like to get into reading Jane Austen, that they start with something that's familiar. Going back and reading 200-year-old literature can be challenging for people who are not accustomed to the language and the complexity yes. mm-hmm. and realize that once you step into the novel, it's not going to be the dialogue that you see in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, movies are dialogue based and we've talked about that Jane Austen is an inner narrative. So mm-hmm. you're going to recognize things. Of mm-hmm. course, you're going to recognize characters and uh, situations and you're going to recognize personalities. But sometimes it's good to have a conceptual framework to right. hang those things on. So if you've watched Jane, a Jane Austen adaptation, then I would go with that book, whether that's Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice, and, and go in that direction. But also I would encourage listening to some other podcasts that mm-hmm. walk through the novels, and there yeah. are some of those. The Daily Nightly um, is one that I've listened to. There are a ton of Jane Austen podcasts mm. that are out there. Some of them are very good. Um, but, yeah, I would go with something that you've seen. And and Pride and Prejudice is of a manageable length and familiar enough mm-hmm. that I think most people would go there. I You know, I tell people all the time, read Persuasion repersuasion because it's probably I think it's her best I think it's Mm -hmm. her 
really yeah. her best piece it, of work. Persuasion, you were right at the beginning when you said, you know, you're asking whether or not Persuasion was her last novel. It was the last novel that she completed. It was published posthumously. And um, most scholars, I've read some articles by actual Jane Austen scholars, that's when they believe that she was at the top of her writing game. Mm -hmm. When she had had her lifetime of writing and composing these novels and Persuasion reflects that. It's a, an, a mature Austen. Um, but if you're more familiar with Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility or Emma, those that have had movie adaptations that are more popular for mainstream audiences, by all means, start with those novels. And Pride and Prejudice is also really a great novel to start with because not only is it of a manageable length, the chapters themselves are very short. Like each chapter is only about two or three pages long. And so if you say, okay, this year, 2022, I'm going to read my first Jane Austen novel. I'm going to read Pride and Prejudice. Get a copy of Pride and Prejudice, put it on your bedside table and read three pages before you go to bed at night. You will finish the book in half a year. It's yeah. that you could, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How do you read Pride and Prejudice one chapter at a time? Right. And the thing is, you'll probably get into it so heavily that you will find yourself reading more of it than just that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, I would start with something that's familiar in that way. Right. All right. Well, that is going to be it for our first recorded podcast of 2022. Woohoo! Woohoo! And we started with such a great topic. Ah, this was so much fun. Not sure how we're going to top this one, but Oh, we'll just wait. I have ideas. I have ideas. I'm I'm ready. Uh, but before we sign off for today, Mom, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you online if they'd like to connect? Yes, I am on Instagram at Lulu the Lit Lover, and I'm on Facebook at Ann Ferguson Stancil. Awesome. And I am online. I'm on Twitter at Emily C underscore more. That's where I share most of my stuff about writing and reading and things like that. I'm also on Instagram. I have a, a book blog on Instagram. That's read underscore more underscore books more. My last name with two O's. And then if you're interested in revisiting episodes of the podcast or reading any blog posts about my journey as a writer, um, I'm also online at emilycarolinemore.com. All right. So until so, next time. Until next time. I'll see you later. Bye. Bye.